and welcome to Story Untold. I'm Martin Bauman, and today I'm talking to a man whose words have hit me like few before. Maybe no one else, really. Michel Chikwanine is a United Nations Fellow for people of African descent. He's a tremendous public speaker. He's an author, and he's also a former child soldier. He was captured at just five years old growing up in the Democratic Republic of Congo. He's seen war turn his country into turmoil and leave his family as refugees. He didn't always want to tell this story. It would be easier probably to just try to forget. But some stories, the ones we need to hear, find their way into the world anyway. Here's his. Well, Michelle, you have become a voice for why child soldiers are worth caring about, they're worth saving, they're worth investing our time into. Why do you do what you do? Uh, <laughs> good question. Uh, I do it for multiple reasons. Um, one, because it's a very personal story. You know, when I was five years old, I was, uh, I was abducted just playing with my friends. Uh, you know, something that was just so normal for us every single day. You, we used to see the military at that time. Uh, when the Congo was under a dictatorship that was supported by the United States mainly uh, by a guy named Mobutu Sese Seiko. Mm. And, you know, we they put a curfew in the whole country that no one can walk on the street after 7 p.m. because, you know, Mobutu at that time was uh, basically he classic dictator was deflect sort of like any problems that were going on locally he would deflect them to oh it's the immigrants fault or mm. uh, you know it's others that are creating our problems and things of that nature so he said to antagonize a lot of his like neighboring countries and so the congo around the early 1990s this is when i'm growing up right uh, was in the in the in a in a moment of chaos, right? We had this president who's, we, you know, in the onset, at least in the 90s, 80s and 90s, the continent of Africa in general was going through this huge shift uh, economically because of the IMF and the World Bank. And so there's a lot of economic turmoil. There's a lot of the war and conflict brought on by this dictator. So the military in Congo was stretched thin because we were fighting on all fronts at this point. And, um, uh, the military hadn't been paid in a while, so they went to the dictator. And so he tells them, we live in the richest country in the world. Literally, you can dig up, go somewhere, dig up on the ground. You can find whatever mineral you can find and sell it. Uh, go find your own wealth, basically, he tells them. And so the military turns around and they put a curfew in the whole country. And anyone who's found on the street after 7 p.m. is robbed. Hmm. And so as a kid, you know, this is the time when I'm four or five years old. I'm growing around this era of just uncertainty that's going on in the country. There's this turmoil. And when the military puts, puts in this curfew, my dad turns around and he puts a curfew in my house. And he tells us that we have to be home before 6 p.m. And so, you know, the little five-year-old kid that I was, like any child, you don't necessarily understand the, the bigger ramifications of things. You just see right. military all the time. So for me, it was this is an opportunity to test the boundaries of my of sort of my curfews. <laughs> um, and so I go to school that morning and I go with my friends, very normal day, right? Congo is a beautiful country, uh, one of the most beautiful countries in the world to me. And so we're going to school, the teachers teaching class. And, you know, in my head, the whole day I'm thinking, well, what am I going to do? Should I go home before 6 p.m., be daddy's little good boy or figure out to, to test out these boundaries? Right. And are you normally the good son or are you I was, the boundary pusher? I was always the good son. I was always the good son with a little caveat. Mm. <laughs> like I, I was always sort of 
testing boundaries here and there because I was the only son. I was the only boy in my family and my dad loved me. And so I, I knew that my dad loved me. And so I just wanted to see how much, how far that love went in many mm-hmm. ways. Mm-hmm. And so that day I go to school, we play. And at the end of the day, instead of going home at 6 p.m., uh, because there, especially in Congo, school started at 8.30 a.m., uh, for kindergartners, it ended around like 12, 1 p.m. Mm-hmm. But I usually stayed at school with, with friends and go back to but go back home with my sisters who were in high school at that time and would walk. would walk for two hours because there were no bus system, so you'd just walk back home. Anyways, in the middle of this, as the bell rang, I instead of running home, I instead go play soccer with my friends. And it was during the soccer field where I get kidnapped and, and taken away. Uh, by a group of soldiers who had surrounded the field at that time. And so we arrive at this this clearing after hours and hours of driving on a, on sort of a bumpy road. Mm-hmm. Uh, and eventually uh, we, we basically get told that we're going to be trained and put into this military. And I'm panicking at this time, a five-year-old kid, and I don't know where I am, right? Like all I see is these people with AK-47s like yelling at all of us, right? Kids are crying and the smell of just like decay and things around you, almost like dead, dead bodies, I guess. And anyway, so it's just like, it was very, very difficult reality check that just that first day in itself. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you, you provided some context of just what was going on in the country at the time, because I think that's important to get into. Um, Yes. As a five-year-old though, how much of that were you, were you aware of, or was it just the fact of, that you knew that there was a curfew? Did you know about these other things that were going on or what did you know? I did. Primarily, I did. My father was a, a politician as well as a human rights activist. Mm-hmm. Um, so he used to sort of want to meet, he used to love uh, when I was engaged with what he was doing. I didn't understand this thing. I didn't understand sort of the bigger picture of, of this whole thing until I got older now and, and sort yeah. of pieced everything else together. But I used to just hear in passing, like, oh, there's a, there's the president is being bad. He's, he's studying a war with other countries. And to me, it was just like, oh, oh, it's war, you know? So you don't necessarily understand the underpinnings of that, right? All you know is there's going to be a lot of militaries around more now. Right. So that was sort of my understanding, my grasp of the bigger picture in general at that time. So your dad is in the house and he is, uh, you know, politically involved and is giving you a bit of an idea of what's going on. Uh, what about your mom, your sisters? Um, yeah. Give me a bit of a, a picture of your family. Yeah. So I grew up with a, a family. It was my father, my mother, um, my two older sisters and a younger sister named Marizia. So my two older sisters were Vicky and Vivian. My uh, mother's name was Chibalonza Inungu Biamungu. And she was a women's rights, not a women's rights activist in the sense. I think when we talk about activism here in the West, we tend to think of people who, like, you know, grab like uh, uh, play like, Blacks and they're going around the streets screaming and, and right. this sort of the activism that we kind of think about in many ways. In, the, in terms of that, at that point, my mom was a women's rights activist in the sense that she was um, empowering a lot of women in terms of, of just starting their own businesses. My mom had always been an entrepreneur woman ever since she was a kid. She lost her parents when she was young. And so she, it forced her to grow up a little more earlier than most people would. Mm. And so she was in, in Benny, where we lived. She would help a lot of women start their own businesses, making uh, 
traditional Congolese clothes called bikwembes, and then these beautiful clothes. If you've ever seen sort of, if you've ever been to West Africa, like Ghana or Nigeria, they have kind of very similar dress styles as, as Congolese people would. So my mom would make those types of clothes. And my father, as I said, a politician, a human rights activist, was sort of engaged in the community. So my, my family in general, in total, was very engaged in our community, was sort of well, well aware of what was going on politically, economically, and socially. Even though, you know, there were other bigger players, of course, in the community than my family. But my dad, because of his, his standing as a human rights activist, was kind of connected, lowerly connected to the sort of the political class uh, of, of the city itself. Yeah. And your sisters, were you close with them too? Or was there too much of an age gap to really have that same kind of connection as you would have with somebody your age? Yeah, there's, yes, there was a bit of a, a, a sort of a, a gap, yes, of course, because they were a lot older than me. I mean, I just saw them as my bigger, my bigger sisters. And so I couldn't, you know, one of the biggest challenges that, that we've had, especially now as we're older, is the fact that because of war, we, we our lives are sort of separated multiple times. Mm-hmm. And so we, we never really got close as, as siblings in general. And so in our older age, even, you know, we all have different lives. It's even become even harder to try and sort of rekindle those types of things. But um, as a younger kid, of course, it was very difficult. I was much more closer. I'm much more closer to my younger sister, who was a baby when I was five years old at that time. You know, so yeah. Yeah. So that's your family. What about what about your hometown, uh, Benny? What's yeah. that like? How big is it? Uh, yeah. What's it known for? Uh, give me a bit of an idea of what it's like. So Benny is uh, a city in in on the eastern part of the Congo. Uh, it's near a lake called Lake Albert. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about the biggest city that would be close to it. it would be a city called Goma. That most, if people pay attention to sort of the news within the Congo, Goma is kind of, sort of like a well-known sort of city because of uh, of the conflicts in the Congo have always sort of passed through that that town. Um, Beni itself was sort of situated in an area where it, it was sort of in the middle line of between the the northern part of the of the state of Kivu and the southern. state part of the state of Kivu, which is where sort of the bigger city. So in, in the north uh, of, of Beni, so if you, you go for northeast of Congo, for example, is a, um, is a bigger city there that's, that's involved in a lot of conflicts, but has a sort of like a, a connection to a lot of minerals. Mm-hmm. And then you go down south, southern part of Beni. So you go to the Gomas, the, the, um, uh, and another city called uh, Bukavu, which is sort of closer to Rwanda. And so, Benny was sort of situated in this area where there was some, if something was to happen, this was where it passed through. Yeah. And so Benny itself was, was not a big city. It was not a big city. It was a big, it was a small ish town. Uh, you know, I guess the most comparable thing I would ever compare it to would be, I don't actually don't even know what, what town I'd compare it to, but it was a small town, you know, it wasn't a village, but it was a small town in general. But um, you know, we had one highway that went through my town in fact, when I was growing up, and the only highway when when it rained, I know here in North America when it snows, if you live sort of on the East Coast, when it snows, people panic and they forget how to drive. Right. Uh, in Benny, it was very similar. We didn't have snow, but we had rain, and when it rained, it seemed that everyone panicked, forgot how to drive. <laughs> uh, but pr- primarily, that was brought on by the fact that the roads in, in Benny at that time were all dirt roads, and so when it rained, the soil eroded because of the water would just take off the top soil. And so you'd get these muddy, 
very like with a lot of potholes and so trucks that would bring in supplies for example would have to use the highway and sometimes they would get stuck for weeks and so we didn't receive any supplies in our in our town because there's no other way of coming into Benny other than this highway mm-hmm. and so it's sort of this 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 amazing beautiful town that was kind of centered around this market itself and for me the market growing up was one of my favorite parts uh, because it was just full of life there was always something going on there was always music and and different types of food that was being sold in there um, I used to love these beautiful women that would walk up from the mountains um, they would walk for hours and hours especially when the trucks got stuck and they'd come in with these beautiful clothings of ikwembes that I talked about yeah um, and they would walk around the market selling bananas and mangoes and they would barter with people and things of that nature so it was a very lively town and is kind of what I'm trying to get to. Yeah. Uh, just full of life in general. Small town, like you kind of know everybody around town, like small enough for that or? No, or a little a little bigger than that in the sense okay. that you would know people in your area. So for example, when where I lived, um, we, we knew people in that, in that area. Mm-hmm. And my, primarily people knew, knew of my family because, you know, we would always have kids in my, we, we lived in a gated house and there was always kids in my house uh, because we would always feed people. And whenever someone lost their kid, they would always come to our house first to check if their kid was there because <laughs> that place itself was well known for being this gathering place for everyone, right. uh, especially younger children. And so it was this amazing place that, yes, you, you'd sort of knew the people in your area. And if you're kind of well known in, in the markets, especially, you'd kind of know a lot of the people that lived around. But there were some families that were sort of like remote and so you wouldn't necessarily know them. But uh, most of the time you, you knew at least, I'd say, a majority of the people that lived in the town. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that day that uh, that the rebels come, yeah, and now you're taken away. You're playing soccer beforehand. It's you, your best friend Kevin is there, yeah. uh, some other friends too, and then you're essentially separated and taken to this camp. Yeah. Um, what what happens at that point? Uh, so we we arrive at this um, this rebel camp as I, as I had started off uh, describing and we we get so we, we were driving in this in this bumpy truck and for hours and hours we drive on the bumpy road we disappear and all we could start seeing is just like trees all across us and eventually the truck stopped and we're told to get out so I take my first step out of the truck and I hear a crunch underneath my feet and so I look around and I'm trying to figure out what is happening mm-hmm. uh, this time I look at all everyone that ha- was, that came with us and Everyone's crying. They're panicking. At five, I'm sort of disoriented. I don't really know what is happening. And so I'm, I'm just kind of grabbing onto any kid that I know and sort of asking them, like, what, where are we going? So we put, get put into a circle and the, the commander starts to basically tell us why we're here, that we're going to free Congo, that we're, we're the children of the army and, and things of that nature. Uh, he then proceeds to sort of give us numbers. And, and at this time sort of the fear starts to kind of sink in because I don't know what's going on. I can't see anyone that I'm familiar with other than Kevin, who's on the other side. Right. And we get given numbers and Kevin, the people that were on Kevin's side were told to sort of face, have their back facing us. And we get put in a line. And so the commander starts to walk around the line saying, we are going to initiate you into our army. Mm -hmm. And, what that what that involved was sort of uh, they they cut my my wrist, and they put a substance called brown brown, which is a mixture of cocaine and gunpowder, and they rub this into the wound, so I would, I would go crazy. Right. And and how how quickly does that 
take hold and and what does that feel like at five um, um that mixture all i remember quite quite honestly was uh, i don't know if you've ever had a cut and you have um either sweat or something that's just salty yes. that goes into the wound it yeah. felt like this sharp a very sharp pain and then almost like this this feeling of like that's overwhelming feeling of just heat in my body and so at this time i'm all i'm all i'm seeing is just blood coming from me so i'm i'm crying i'm screaming mm-hmm. and and then i start to get a headache and i get disoriented and i don't know what's happening and i feel almost like i'm, I'm dazed like i'm going to faint but i'm not fainting and my head's pounding at this time like almost as if there are a million drums being pounded in my head and so i'm just lying on the ground crying and they're they're like, like getting me up and making me to stand making me stand up they told me if i if i don't stand up that they're going to kill me and so i had to stay up strong they said mm. so i stood there with my hand bleeding they start bandaging my arm and I, I'm looking around trying to see Kevin, but all the kids are crying. So everyone, it's happening to everyone around us. And so it's just this like this place of like tears and fear and and people screaming. And all of us are being told that if we don't shut up, we're going to be killed. So you're trying to sort of like not cry. Right. And so it was just like a very disorienting feeling. I guess that's that's really the best way I can explain it. It was almost like this otherworldly experience that was happening with so much pain mm-hmm. uh, and sort of a, a disillusion of what is going to happen next, almost like you're going to die. And for a five-year-old kid, I didn't know what that even meant, to be quite honest. And so after this whole experience, I can't remember how long it took, but they start giving us guns. They give us AK-47s. And at, at this age, have you seen guns before? Yeah. Or, yeah. 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 Yeah, I'd seen guns. I mean, I mean, when you live... At that time in the early 1990s, as I said, because of the, the dictator that we had, the military was quite visible every day. Mm-hmm. And so you saw guns, you saw AK-47s, you saw, um, you know, all types of weapons were there, right? Like right. you had the trucks with sort of the weapons attached to them. You, had, you saw tanks. These were very sort of familiar visuals for me. And so the, the AK-47 had seen it before, but I never carried before. In fact, I right. remember as a kid, we used to play a game called war where we'd make uh, fake ak-47s out of banana plant uh, uh-huh. banana plants so and then you'd see movies and things of that nature so they're quite we're quite aware of what a weapon was uh and what it did and so they put this weapon in my hand but the gun is heavy and so i couldn't lift it so i just dropped it it was heavier than the banana plant that i had made <laughs> Right. As a kid, right? So and so, all of these things are going through my mind. My head's pounding. This thing is heavy. It drops on the ground, and they start yelling at me to pick it up. And I, I, I can't pick it up. I don't know how to pick it up. So I'm crying as I'm trying to like lift it, and they start to laugh at me. And mm-hmm. so the rebel commander comes comes behind. He blindfolds me at this time. He grabs the gun, and I can hear all these kids crying. I can hear everyone else what's going on around me. And then my ears felt as if they had been shot. Um, and and they start yelling at me to shoot. Mm. So they're yelling louder and louder and louder for me to shoot. And I, this time I'm feeling so woozy, like I'm I'm literally almost feeling like like a faint feeling. And so I just pull the trigger. Right. I pull the trigger and I hear just a loud bang, and then just the 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 gun reverberates in my hand, and and then I drop it again. The soldiers keep laughing behind me. And they took off the blindfold. 
And so I look at my left hand and I looked at my both of my hands. I just, my hands feel fuzzy. And I'm, at this time, all I'm seeing is sort of like this hazy hue in my eyes. And I look at my hands and it seems as if there's blood dripping from it. So I'm looking at my hand trying to find the wound. And I look in front of me and a few feet in front of me, uh, Kevin, my best friend, is lying there mm-hmm. in a pool of his own blood. Now, at this age, I mean, at any age for that matter, I, I can't even begin to imagine that feeling. What were your immediate thoughts seeing Kevin there in this unfamiliar environment, people around you crying, screaming? What's going through your head? I thought that Kevin was doing exactly what we were told when we were as kids, which is you hear a gunshot, you drop to the ground. Right. And so at first I thought Kevin was lying on the ground and he was just waiting for the sounds to stop. And so I ran towards him to tell him that the sound had stopped. But as I keep shaking him, he's not moving. Hmm. And I kept shaking him and yelling at him to stand up and he doesn't move. The soldiers are laughing. There's more gunshots going off. And so I'm like laying on the ground, closing my ears as well. Mm-hmm. And then I flip him over and Kevin, his eyes are wide open. He's trying to say something, but there's just foam and blood coming out of his mouth. Hmm. And so I grab him and I'm, I'm, I'm crying. I'm telling him that he, he has to stand up. And the soldiers behind me come as they're laughing. Then they tell me, you've killed your friend now. Your family will never take you back. We are your only family. Hmm. Now, at the same time, is this happening with other kids? That, that yeah, same, yeah, exactly. So they're basically they gave the they gave us when we first arrived. They gave us numbers, so they gave number ones and number twos, and mm-hmm. they're just basically going around the circle, give you one or two, one or two, and depending on which number you were given, you were basically survived by luck. So Kevin was given the number two, I was given the number one, and the number ones were shooting. Right. Yeah. And so just by a chance, by by luck, really. I got the number one, and had it not been that so, I couldn't. I wouldn't be here speaking. You were with this group for about two weeks after that initial yeah. encounter. Yeah. What, what were those following two weeks like? Uh, literally, the first day after that Kevin thing happened, we get put into a tent, and we were told that if we leave, uh, that they're outside and they'll shoot us too. Hmm. We don't go to sleep at that that night. My head, my head, I've. I don't know if anyone's ever had a fever before, but I felt like I was having a fever. I used to have malaria all the time as a kid, so I remember that feeling. And my head's pounding. My my arm where I was cut feels like it's pulsating. And I look around me, and everyone is sort of in sort of this very disoriented phase. No one, you know, people are kind of like crying and sniffing. You know, yeah. when you've cried so much, you're not, you, you don't have any more tears. Uh, mm. The second day, we basically start get put into a line there was a few women in the camp who were making food for all of us and so they make us breakfast which is basically like corn corn meals we like corn dumpling and beans and uh and tea Mm. and we get told that we're going to be trained into the military so they start training us basically for the whole two-week period we were there we were being trained how to be in the military i was taught how to put an ak-47 together how to to break it apart how to stab someone, like literally we'd, we'd, we'd practice how to stab someone with a bayonet mm-hmm. um, using banana plants as as people in a sense. Um, we'd wake up very early, we'd go on marches, like literally running, and they would teach us chants and so we'd do formations and things of that nature. So 
the military training is basically what we were doing for yeah. two weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Did you ever think you would see your family again at that point? For the first few days, I thought, I thought so, you know, but mm-hmm. as the days kept continuing and it was almost like a feeling of hopelessness. Yeah. Um, Cause every day, every morning I would wake up, th- I'd go to sleep thinking that this was a nightmare I was going to wake up from. And then some days when I wake up during the day, you know, we were told we we're going to be on patrol. And that means like you were being watched by other people. And then basically, basically showing you how to do patrol for, for them. We'd go through like the forest and some of those moments I would catch myself thinking that maybe my father was going to come in somehow with the military and they're going to kill these people and they're going to save us. But then, you know, every morning I'd wake up and I'm still in the same situation. And so every day became sort of this sense of hopelessness, knowing that there's nothing that I'm going to do, that my family is gone. And I should have listened to my father when mm. he told me to be home before 6 p.m. And so all these are sort of like things are going through my head. But also because especially when I lost Kevin, I, I didn't have anyone that I knew very well. And so I it was trying to find this like a, a person that I recognized. And so the rebel commander especially wanted to target a lot of the younger kids. And so he would always be friendly with us. He would bring us candy. Um, just uh, it, was, it was trying to be sort of like the father figure. And in many right. ways, this is kind of the, the, the tactic with child soldiers. They try to break you down right. and rebuild you all up apart in their own image in a sense. Right. They, they take you, take your hope away. Yeah. At least they make you feel as though you can't return. Yes. And then this is all you got. This is all you got. Yeah. yeah. And so for a very long period of time during the whole two week period, that's exactly how I felt. But yeah. even though I was so afraid, and I always say this, even though I was so afraid of what was happening, I was more afraid of, of my father than I was ever afraid of any human being <laughs> on the planet. And to give you an idea of why, is my father was six foot, around six foot seven, six foot eight, uh-huh. 150 pounds. Big guy. So this giant, this giant of a man, when he said something, his voice would like command respect. You know, I, even though I still defied him, like he, the fear of, of him and, and when he was angry was still much more than I had any fear of these people. And so that fear was always in the back of my head, the fear of returning home and being home before 6 p.m., not knowing what day of the week it was, but just knowing that I had to be home at some point, no matter when, before mm-hmm. 6 p.m. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How did you get out? And so after sort of the initial training process, you know, it was, a, it was sort of like a very sad, a very sad, sad period. I mean, imagine a five-year-old kid being put in a situation not having a home, you know, like yeah. every night I'll go crying. I'd, I would cry and they'd, they'd slap me and tell me to shut up and I'd have to shut up. And so after two weeks of sort of that, the process, eventually we're told that there was a village nearby that had food and gun supplies that we needed to take over. And so they put us into a truck and we drive to this village and they put all the younger children at the front. And the tactic, as we were explained when we were training, was that the the older soldiers, if we go somewhere and the older soldiers see children, they won't shoot children first, right? They will never mm. shoot children. Their instinct is, oh, they're just children. But behind us are the adults and they're going to shoot the, the soldiers who hesitated. Mm-hmm. And so we they devise this plan. We arrive at this this, this village. We get out of the truck and we're looking sort of across this horizon and we're in the we're, we're laying down in this this huge field of grass like long long grass 
And the point of attack was that the kids would sort of infiltrate the village first and then the adults would come back. And so we we arrived there, but I look across to my right and I, I see this clearing of trees. And for some, I don't know what went through my head, but I saw, for some reason, I, I think to myself, oh, that's my way home. Hmm. And so... I start to like walk with everyone else and we'll, we start walking and then a gunshot goes off. And so chaos sort of ensues in that moment and everybody's sort of like running for cover in different places. I just duck on the ground and I pretend that I'd been shot. And so I laid in this long grass waiting for the sound either to stop or for people to keep marching past me. And so a few, a few people start marching. I hear people sort of like talking. And eventually, after 15 minutes, I start hearing sort of the voices advancing forward. Yeah. Um, and so I start crawling my way through the grass towards the clearing that I saw to my right. And after a few feet, I just stand up and I start running towards the clearing as fast as I could. And for three days and three nights, I ran through that jungle having no idea where I was going. Um, but somehow, eventually, I ended up in this, after those three days, initial days, I ended up in this other clearing and I start to hear sounds and i hear people screaming and talking and and trucks and so i started to figure that maybe the soldiers had chased me and they'd caught up to me right did you see anybody in those three days and three nights no no No. i was by myself for the whole night and the reason why i survived was and and this is the reason one of the reasons why i love my father was when i was a kid because we didn't have tvs or or video games so we had no way of entertaining ourselves um I mean, we had a TV, but, you know, the, our electricity sort of went in and out. Most of the time, you'd lose it for like three hours, and so it wasn't consistent. And we okay. didn't have games. So we spent most of my, most children at that time spent our time outside. And because Benny itself was surrounded by, by a forest, I used to spend a lot of time in the forest with my father. And he used to tell me that if you ever get lost, he said, always look for a water body or banana trees. Because in Congo, the sign that there's there's farms is banana trees and waters always, always, whatever there's water, there was always people. He, he would tell me. Hmm. And so he, we used to climb trees. I used to climb mango trees. So climbing trees was sort of like a very simple thing for me. And so I used to climb when it would get dark, as it started to get darker, I would climb the trees and I would sleep in the trees and I would just, I would, I'd sleep. Sometimes I wouldn't sleep and I would just sort of hug the trees mm-hmm hoping and, and waiting for the night to sort of go away. And I would doze off, of course, and things of that nature. I was so afraid. Like, I was I was so, so afraid. To this day, to be very honest with you, I, I don't know how I survived. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I, can't, I, I tried to explain, but I don't know. I have no idea. All I know is I had fear of my father. I had this knowledge that was passed on to me by my family and by my dad especially, and it was a sort of like this instinct of like, I'm just one trying to get home. And just, I kept walking. And in the morning, whenever the sun would come out, I'd look across the horizon to try and find banana trees or any type of water. Mm-hmm. And so I'd just keep walking uh, wherever the sun was is where I'd follow. And it's sort of my sense of direction is wherever the sun is, that's where you follow. And so I'd, I'd kind of go. And then eventually that's kind of how I ended up finding my way to this town called Butembo which wasn't far, which is where the trucks were. And this is where I ended up mm-hmm. finding a man who, who sort of knew my family and, and he took me back. How far away was that from home? Benny, um, Benny and Butembo are not far away from each other. So they're almost yeah. like uh, 
uh, I think it's 600 to 400, 439 kilometers, I think. So almost 500 kilometers, which I don't know yeah. what that would be in miles, but so it's, it's almost like four, four or five hour drive. Yeah. With I good mean, that's road. still pretty, pretty far to me. Yeah, yeah it <laughs> yeah. is. It is far. Yeah. 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 Um, and just eating, you're eating mangoes and bananas. Mangoes and bananas at that time. All I could find was just if I can find any mangoes, any fruits really that I could find, I would eat. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's really how I survived. Uh, I would keep sort of bananas in my pockets uh, and mangoes, and I would just eat them as I walk or, I walk along. Um, a few days it rained. Uh, a few days it rained. I remember very well, uh, and I just stayed in the trees. I'm just waiting for the rain to stop. So this person from the store that you recognized, they take you back to your family. Tell me about that reunion to be able to come home. Yeah. Um, So uh, there's a town sort of between Beni and Butembo. It's called uh, uh, Mangina. There's also some other small sort of these small little towns called uh, Wicha and Mutwanga, like these these sort of like small little villages around around in between Beni and Butembo. So my father and I uh, and my family in general, my my mom specifically, used to do a lot of business in in the town of Mutwanga, mm-hmm. and she used to go and buy sort of supplies from those places. And so my my family sort of knew a few people in those areas. Um, especially because of my mom's business connections, and so in in Butembo, where where I ended up finding my 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 way to, there was a department store sort of that used to sell um, like corn, like flour. They used to sell um, sort of like small little goods here and there, it's like a small little shop. And this man, um, actually, my dad, <laughs> when I was younger, and I would do something wrong, my dad would punish me, and I'd tell him that I hate him. <laughs> and he took me to the store to bribe me into liking him back again. <laughs> so he'd tell me, find whatever you want, whether it's cookies or ice cream or bread. And I would buy it. And then that was his way of sort of like <laughs> getting me back to his good graces and sort of like, and so he'd always bribe me. And then, so mm. anyways, so I remember, I remember the first time when I, when I got out of the forest and, and actually made my way on the road to, to Butembo and when I saw the store and I recognized it, it was like this amazing feeling of, I don't know if you've ever sort of been away from home for so long and then you see home for the very first time. It was like seeing this thing that you just recognize and this sense of just relief that went through my body. Hmm. And, I, and I ran and I was screaming, screaming for my father's name as I'm running towards the store. And I run into the store and my father isn't there. And again, this moment of sort of like hopelessness sets in. Oh, my family's not here. Mm. And so I look around and everybody's kind of looking at me, wondering why this kid is screaming by, the, by himself. And so I look over to the store owner and he started yelling at me, telling me to leave his store. And then he sees the shirt that I have on has blood on it. Mm. And so he starts to ask me where I'm from, who I am. And so I tell him I'm the son of Ramazani Chikwanine and I need help. And then... I don't remember anything after that. I I passed out a few minutes later, I guess from exhaustion and just yeah. hunger and tiredness. And like I, I don't remember anything. All I remember is sort of like little, I remember small little pieces here and there um, being carried to a bus. I think it was called Temka. Uh, yeah, there's, there's sort of like uh, this, this, this truck that would carry like uh, corn. It was, anyways, they're just like small little memories that I still sort of piece together here and there, but I don't remember, I vaguely remember what happened after that, but uh, right. 
uh, I guess I woke up the next time I woke up and I was in the hospital and my mom was next to me. My mom, my mom, my, my two sisters, our older sisters were there as well. And they were crying. Hmm. And so I look over to my right and I hear my mom crying and I start to cry and I say, I'm so sorry. And I start to apologize. And my mom is sort of just hugging me and you all these sort of like family members are around. And, and then a few sort of, Hour, like an hour later, my father comes in and he, he hugs me and he tells me this will never happen ever again. Hmm. And so, yeah, it was, uh, it was amazing. It was, it was, it's a miracle that I'm here. I, I always say it's really, it's surreal to this very day, very surreal uh, experience of, of like a time that I can't even, I can't even put into words. Yeah. How soon do you tell your parents what happened at the rebel camp? Um, I guess I think everyone sort of knew what had happened hmm. because they were all of a sudden in a town where nothing, children didn't go missing just randomly. A bunch of children taken from school, right? Like you have a, a, a significant amount of children taken away from a school and they disappear. Right. Uh, and so the military had been sort of engaged in trying to look for the kids I'm assuming. And so the whole town kind of knew what had happened. So it was um, a few hours after my father sort of walked into the, into, the, into the hospital when I started to sort of explain what had happened. And he, he looks at me and he says, don't worry. We're going to figure out uh, what to do and we're going to help you. And so I explained to my father in detail, really, about what had happened and, and especially to Kevin Mm-hmm. And the, I was trying to explain to him the people that I remember, the the soldiers, what their faces were like. So it was just literally a few a few hours after he arrived, I, I started to explain them. The, and then the the police came in, and the military came in, and they they talked to my father about it. If I could remember where the the path that I took, and I just told them I don't remember anything. You know, I just kept walking. I mean, yeah, five years old. <laughs> I don't know how good anyone's uh, sense no. of direction and understanding could be. No. What are the next um, few years like for you in the Congo? What happens next after you made it home safe? Yeah. How do things progress from there? It became a little harder. You know, it's uh, the first sort of few weeks going back home because I stayed in the hospital for a few weeks. Um, as they're trying to sort of treat the wounds that I had on my body from either falling while I was running. Um, anyway, so the, the, the few weeks were kind of very difficult and almost like there's also because of the, the drugs they've been giving us as kids, there's a sort of like sense of withdrawal, right? Like, uh, mm. and so it's nights of just like shivering and, and, and terror, like literally having nightmares every single night. I couldn't sleep, honestly. I couldn't, I don't remember sleeping for, for a few, few weeks, maybe like one hour or 30 minutes. And then I wake up again, you know? So it was always sort of like this, 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 this moment of my life that was just so filled with terror. You know, you had this moment growing up as a kid, as a happy kid. Right. And then a few said literally weeks later, I'm a completely different person. You know, I wasn't smiling. I wasn't happy. My dad sort of became my mentor. And, and again, my, my father is such a huge figure in my life. Was He became as this person that I was always looking up to. And so my father sort of became my, my, 
my comfort zone. Whenever I would wake up in the middle of the night, he would come in and, and sort of uh, console me and tell me everything is okay. Um, you know, so he, they were really tough. But my father sort of tried to, especially one thing that he tried to do, he wanted to make sure that I, I don't uh, get affected by what people say. And so he sort of kept, sheltered me quite a lot. So I stayed at home quite a bit. Hmm. And, and then eventually I ended up uh, in Goma. So this the town that I talked about that was south of Beni. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because we had most of my family, the Chikwanine family especially, is centered around Bukavu and Goma. And so I ended up in Goma to live with my aunt uh, because my dad was just not sure um, of what, what the reaction was like in the town especially. But also he was just afraid of, of what would happen again. Sorry, if, if my father... If the military just decided to come in and start to take children again, so right. my father was sort of very afraid of, of of what would happen. So he ended up going to Goma to live with my aunt for a few years. And, uh, and how old were you then? I was so this is six, seven, and then eight years old. Yeah. So yeah. eight. So from six to eight, I ended up living in Goma with my family. Yeah. With my aunt, um, and my dad would come and and my mom would come and gradually visit from time to time. Um, but I stayed with my cousins and and my family who are now in, who are now in Tacoma in Seattle. But uh, I lived with them for quite a bit. And then when I was nine years old, I ended up going back to Benny to go live with my mom and dad mm-hmm. uh, and my and my sisters. And so I went back again. And then literally uh, a year later, after me going back home, the first Congo War starts mm. in 1998. Yeah, yeah. Five years after you become you know abducted and taken as a child soldier, you're at home. 10 years old yeah and then rebels break into your house and, yeah. and it's you and your mom and your sisters around um but again that that, that feeling i imagine of of powerlessness um, yeah what happened this time yeah and so the first congo to just sort of give it a little bit of context as well because these things sort of didn't happen in isolation mm-hmm. um so in you know f- as i said congo had a dictator we only had one president really since our independence from, from Belgian colonial rule in 1961, when we got our independence, mm-hmm. um, the, the, the president Mobutu was sort of a close ally to the United States and the CIA. And then I guess in their mid 1990s, you know, so when they sort of helped him, this is the midst of the cold war era type mm-hmm. of thing. Mm-hmm. And so in the 1990s, this is sort of like a time where I think the United States was sort of like giving up its sort of Cold War ambition and everybody sort of like push, pulling out of sort of that narrative. And Mobutu, who was sort of like one of their stand standalone leaders on, on the continent of Africa, was now on his own. And so he's he's left sort of weakened by, by years of economic strife and political strife and all these things. And then there's a, a rebel leader in the east of Congo called uh, Kabila, Laurent Joseph Kabila. Mm-hmm. And uh, so Laurent Desiré Kabila. And Laurent Kabila was, uh, so Kabila the father, as he's always known. And he basically starts this war with the help of Rwanda and Uganda, two countries to the east of Congo. And the eastern part of the Congo is this very mineral wealth place. You know, it's, it's always been a site of conflict for years, for years and decades and decades. And so anyways, this, this military, this rebel group starts to push all the way through. Um, this is in the context after the 1994 genocide. So there was also mm. a huge population of Rwandese 
um, Hutus, uh, Tutsis, all within the eastern part of the Congo. Mm-hmm. This had created sort of animosity between the Congolese government, the Rwandese government. Uh, and so there's this like tension that's going on in a country at this time in, the, in sort of the 1997s, 1998 time. And so eventually, I guess Rwanda went to the UN Security Council to ask for a mandate to invade Congo to look for genocidaires. And so the mandate was given to them. And I guess in, in this sort of commotion, they started to help Kabila and then Uganda eventually. And so you get all these like different hands that get involved in this first Congo war. Yeah. In the international community at this time, whether you listen to the news, my dad used to listen to BBC radio quite a lot. And so you'd listen to the radio and they would always say the war in Congo is just another example of African people killing themselves. This is sort of like this has been the narrative of when there's a, whenever there's war in Africa, this is sort of the narrative that the international community sort of always gives. Yeah, you know, sure. African people killing themselves without talking about the context of what's happening and who's causing this wars. So my father starts to investigate as a human rights activist about what the war is about and ends up finding out that the war in Congo has not necessarily having anything to do with looking for genocidaires or trying to sort of impose some kind of peace between the Congolese people and the Rwandese people that were there, but it had to do a lot with the minerals in the Congo. Mm. And ends up finding out that some of his political friends that he knew were engaged in, in sort of starting little groups here and there. And so he becomes sort of enemy number one in the town of Beni for a lot of the political class. Yeah. And so they kill. The first thing that happened was these rebel leaders start to attack Beni and they kill the mayor, his wife and kids. And so my father starts to protest at this time as they're closing down the university in, in Beni, they're closing down all the other different schools. And my father decided that he was going to become sort of like a, a resistor. And so he starts to protest. And so that when they came to my house, it was after my father had been kidnapped and, and tortured for seven months. Hmm. And so they took my father away. They tortured him for basically researching and finding out about the real reason why the war was going on in Congo. And my father's hope was actually to to publish his findings to the international community to sort of give sort of the context of what's happening on the ground so that there isn't this false narrative so he, he could get justice in a sense. Yeah. Um, and so that made him an enemy, right? Because there's a lot of people who want money from the Congo. And so my father gets kidnapped. Eventually he has to leave. So he left. Um, when they let, let him go, he ended up running away in exile in Uganda. So he leaves the family. Mm-hmm. And so they came to my house in 1998. I was 10 years old. I'll never forget it. And they come into the house and they start shooting at my house and they're looking for my father. Hmm. And at this time, at 10 years old, I'm still traumatized by what had happened to me as a five-year-old kid. So I take a deep breath and I run in the, in the bed hoping that the sound of gunshots would stop. Mm-hmm. But I start hearing people screaming in the kitchen and screaming for people, my father. And so I remember that my mom was in the kitchen and my sisters were cooking food. And so I start running to the kitchen to go try and get them to come with me to underneath my bed to hide. But as I open the door uh, into the kitchen, I hear a click behind me. Mm. And so I look back and there's a rebel soldier behind me with a, with a gun pointed to me. And uh, he, he tells me to keep moving into the kitchen. And so they take me into the kitchen where my mother and my sisters are, and they're surrounded by soldiers. And they start telling us why they're there. And they tell us that my father has documents and they need these documents. 
um, we tell them that we don't know anything about these documents. And so they start coming through my, my, my father, my whole house. They grab any papers they can find and they burn them. They put them in the fire. Um, and they grab my sisters and my two older sisters at this time. They, they throw them on the ground and my mom and, and they proceed to rape them. Hmm. And, and at 10 years old, uh, I, I, I can't, I can't even imagine, um, what happens in the aftermath of that? Uh, it was, um, uh, it was a very sorry, uh, sorry. It's just, uh, it was a very difficult time. You know, it's very difficult to watch as a 10 year old mm-hmm. bit of the helplessness that my family was feeling. Mm-hmm. And I remember my mom crying as a soldier's on top of him. And my mom is screaming and she's, she's yelling for him to stop and he's not stopping. So I just ran over towards the guy and uh, grabbing him and telling him to just, to just stop. And I'm shaking him. And so he, he elbows me in the face. I fall off. They grab me and they shove me onto a wall and they were going to kill me. They were going to cut my head with a, with a machete. Hmm. And uh, instead of cutting me off, they, they look at me and they start laughing and they grab the machete and they cut, they slash my left cheek where I still have a scar to this day. And as I'm bleeding, they look at my face and they tell me that this will be a day that I'll never forget. And that this was brought on by my father and I should never forget that. Hmm. Uh, and then they proceeded to leave after they were done. And uh, I, I ran to my mom and I grabbed my mom as she's curled in the ground asking her what I should do, what I could do to help. And my mom just says, go get neighbors, anything, anyone who can help us. And so I ran outside the house with a bloody face, uh, screaming for any neighbor to come and help my family. And eventually someone came over uh, and we ended up in the hospital. Uh, and it was sort of one of the most dehumanizing experiences I think I I had ever noticed or, or, or ex- experienced at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we get taken there and, and my fam, my mom gets taken from the hospital back home. But we realized very quickly that if we stayed in Benny, that uh, we were going to get killed too. Uh, so we eventually with, a, if with, with the help of friends and, 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 uh, sort of colleagues that my father had worked with, we get smuggled outside, out, out of Congo, out of Benny to Uganda, yeah. uh, and we become refugees and we left everything we had ever known in the middle of the night. No choice of our own. No one really wanted to leave, but we had no choice. So we ended up in Uganda in the refugee camp where my father was. Hmm. Uh, and that's, that's how my family became refugees. You know, uh, you, you lived through this, you and your family and, and survived. And yet, and I'm conscious of this as I ask you to tell your story, I mean, each time you're asked to retell the story, you've got to relive a part of that. And I'm sure that's got to be difficult. Um, what does that bring up in you? Or how difficult is that to, to have to go back? To yeah. that? You know, I never, I never wanted to tell my story. I, I, I actually, it was, it, was, it was very interesting how I even got into it. Was, I, got, I came to Canada as a refugee and I was sitting down on my, in, my, in a grade 10 class. And the teacher looks at me and he says, everyone that sits in that seat has an amazing story to tell. He doesn't even know me, doesn't even know who I am, but somehow points out at me. And so I'm like, what are you talking about? Right. 
And he tells me, you know, he proceeds to say it's an English class. And so he says, you know, I want everyone to write an epiphany essay um, about something that was just like an aha moment that happened in your life. It could be the, that you got a bird and you went on a trip and somehow, you know, your life changed, whatever. Just write about something monumental that happened in your life. And so I write, uh, I started to write about my family coming to Canada, our refugee experience as a family. Right. Because I did not want to relive the war. I did not want to relive what happened to me or my family, but I just wanted to relive, sort of tell the experience of what it's like being a refugee, leaving your home, everything that you'd ever known as a kid and arrive in this new strange country that you'd never ever heard of. Well, you've heard of, but you've never really seen. Mm-hmm. And so I start to write an essay and behind me, there's a, a girl writing an essay about how um, her parents, she wanted her parents to buy her a pink Motorola razor. I don't know if you remember the pink <laughs> Motorola razor. So for her birthday, she wanted the pink Motorola razor, but they accidentally got her a black Motorola razor. And so she got angry and she was writing about that, that experience made her realize why parents should listen to their children mm. so that they can be successful in life. Mm. And I remember it struck me because in high school, I was bullied quite a lot for being African, for being Mm -hmm. black. Mm -hmm. Uh, I experienced quite a bit of uh, not, I experienced racism in in subtle sense. Mm -hmm. And I had never understood the the hatred that people had for African people, black people, or sort of this idea that black people were backward or African people were backward or that we only lived in huts and sort of the stereotypical ideas of Africa. Sure. Um, and so it was in that moment where I, I remember getting this moment of feeling they don't actually understand what it's like to live through a war, a war that actually feeds the minerals that, that create the, the cell phones that people have. Mm. And so it was sort of the connection of these two things. And the fact that my father had worked hard to tell people about that this this the reason why the war was going on in Congo is because of its minerals. And as I grew up and, and came to Canada, I found out about a mineral called coltan and its connection to cell phones and electronics and to the Congo. Anyway, so all these things started sort of making connections. And so I started to write this essay about my my father as a human rights activist, um, what he was fighting for. And then my family as refugees. And so that was the initial part of me telling my story. It was sort of to sort of uh, educate uh, a lot of uh, what I consider to be sort of an ignorant um, idea of what Africa was in my high school. Mm-hmm. And then uh, right after I, gra- what I when I graduated high school, I got a job to work for an organization called Free the Children. It's not called We. And they were doing a sort of a joint project with Oprah. And it was going into inner city schools to talk about young people about you know about overcoming challenges and and using opportunities ahead in front of you to make a better your your life better and while i'm sitting down with the person that i was struggling with we're sort of like talking about another former child soldier called uh, Ishmael Bea who wrote a book called The Long Way Gone yeah and it's sort of just in this intimate moment intimate setting of just talking with a friend that I told them that I was a child soldier. And that was in 2007. That was the very first time I ever told anyone about that story and that experience. Right. Anybody outside your family? uh, No, no one else outside my family ever knew that other, other Mm. than my family. Yeah. 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 And then this, this, the the friend, his name is Gary, uh, other than Gary, that becomes the first person I tell. And so it's this moment I start crying and I tell him, telling him about the story. And so retelling the story became a, in, two ways it it was a very difficult experience 
but it also became a very, the second part was the therapeutic aspect of it. Mm-hmm. You know, retelling sort of my story became a, a way of sort of letting go of these like huge things that I felt were on my shoulders and I just didn't know how to even express them. Right. Um, and so this opportunity to work and, and speak to young people in inner city schools is sort of my way of sort of telling them that, listen, I come through these difficult moments, these difficult realities. We have opportunities, especially people who face hardship, to use those hardship whenever you have the opportunity to actually make a huge, a better part of your life. And so, yeah, that, that, that was, it was a very difficult, and every time I do retell this story, it's, it's, it's very heartbreaking. It's not an easy thing to do, especially primarily because, you know, when people hear about child soldiers, you know, they hear about and romanticize sort of the story. But these are stories and anybody who's ever been through war, we see this with our with military service members with PTSD. So it's it's not a, a pretty picture. War is not a pretty picture. Mm-hmm. And the people that experience it are, are don't come out just okay. You know, there's there's hurt. There's there's a lot of pain that, that kind of follows it through that people will never see. And we don't sort of understand. And that's what I face on my own on a day-to-day basis. But, uh, you know, I tell my story for many different reasons. And I'm sure we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that some more. Yeah. yeah. I hope you don't mind. I want to backtrack a little bit to to go back to your family arriving, kind of reconvening in Uganda in the refugee yeah. camp. Yeah. So you're... You're 11 years old at this point, and I mean, your experience up until then, you had been a family, you know, you lived in a house with a gate. You were pretty yeah. well off as a family. Yeah, yeah. And, and now, to be in a refugee camp, um, yeah. what are you thinking at that age about your circumstances? Well, you know, I uh, the, the experience of being a refugee is one of the most um, heartbreaking experiences a human being can go through. You're dehumanized to the point where you do not even exist in the in the eyes of many. And so for my family specifically, you know, we lived in, we weren't wealthy, but because my father was engaged in politics and, and knew people, we were pretty well off than most people. Mm-hmm. You know, we had a pretty nice home and my father, my mom and dad had worked hard since they, they were together. They were, they got married when my dad was 19 and she was 16. Um, you know, so like, they they had lived together for a very long time and worked hard for what my family had earned. And we, because of a war, because of just the circumstances, the reality of the gl- global politics and the global economies that affect sort of the, co- the continent of Africa in many different ways, my family has to leave. And so we leave and end up becoming refugees in Uganda in a plastic tent. Yeah. And we're, we're living, we had no mattress, we had no bed, we slept on a mat that my mom had sort of made out of grass with her own hands. She had like put it together with her own hands. Mm-hmm. Um, for our pillows, she had her flip-flops and she'd put her bikwembe's, uh, the clothes she made, yeah. on top of them. And that's how we slept. You know, we, we, at night, the, the, the no TVs, we would tell stories. And the only way you survive a refugee camp really is you have to band together as a community. You have to find sort of find people. You have to laugh at the situation because there's hopelessness around you. It's like you're not even moving. Uh, it's, you're living in, a, in, in this like time period where you're just stuck and there's no movement. There's no jobs. There's no school. There's no water. There's no food. And everything is about you begging from somebody else, asking for someone else or waiting for somebody to help you. Hmm. So imagine going for me as a kid, I was 11 years old. And so, 
I came from a family where we, we had food and we shared food with other people. Right. And here we are going to sleep sometimes hungry, eating bread and water. And we went sometimes for two weeks only eating bread and water. And I'll never forget that experience. Right. And, and it was one of the most heartbreaking experiences seeing my father, who I, I admired, like looking beaten in a certain way. You know, mm. my mom, this, this go-getter and this amazing woman, almost feeling like she, what, what is she going to do? You know, and so that was the experience of being a refugee in Uganda. It was a very, very difficult experience. Uh, and then eventually we knew that we couldn't stay in the refugee camp. We, we couldn't survive. Mm-hmm. So my father emailed one of his friends. He was a, 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 he was like a priest, a Catholic priest. His name was Pierre Michel. And, uh, and he basically takes my, fa- my family in and introduces us to a, a man named Pascal. And Pascal was sort of like a family friend that we had known. And he was a safari driver. And he takes my family into, in Kampala, so the capital city of Uganda. Right, yeah. And so we realized that we, the refugee camp we were staying in was in northern Uganda in a place near, near Gulu. It was, it was a little far away from Gulu, but around that place. And so we ended up in Kampala uh, because the, the UN office, the UN the office in charge of sort of refugee affairs for the UN. So UNHCR was based in Kampala. And we knew that if we had any, any, any like chance of getting help of just, or just someone giving us an opportunity to survive, we had to get in touch with the UN. And so the best chance really was not in the refugee camp, but he was in Kampala. And so my mom and dad would wake up every morning at 3 a.m., and walk for hours in some of the most dangerous streets for, for, for anyone to try and get us a refugee number. But because Uganda and Rwanda was, were involved in the war in the Congo, I don't know to what extent, but I, we still think the reason why my father was assassinated was because of the fact that he was a human rights activist who was detailing mm-hmm. what was actually happening in the war. Mm-hmm. And so in, in 2001 as my father is starting to go. So we, we were in the refugee camp in 1998 to 1999, 1999, we, uh, we leave. Um, and so late 1999, we leave the refugee camp, end up in Kampala. In 2001, my father goes one morning, every Monday, as he always did, he goes to uh, February 19th and he goes to the, he goes to the refugee, to the UN refugee office and he's thirsty and he, he was asking someone to give him water. So someone gave him water. He didn't remember who. He drank the water and comes back home and he starts to tell us that he feels as if his chest is burning all the way into his stomach. Mm. And so that, that morning I, I was ready to go to school. So I, I come back from school for lunchtime to see how he's doing. And he's still telling my mom that he's burning. We should go buy him milk. So my mom runs out to go buy him milk. I go back to school. As soon as I arrive at school, I, my mom comes running into the school yelling for us to go back home. So we run home and we arrive at the, at the house we were living. And my dad is sitting on the bed and my father's crying. Hmm. And he's, I had never seen my father cry. And I always thought my father was like Superman, this giant man, as I explained. Right. And he's crying. And so 12 years old, I run to my dad. I grab my dad's hands and I'm asking him what I can do to help. And he grabs my hands and he says, never forget that we are Congolese, that we have a home, that we have a culture, 
that we are a people. But most important of all, always remember that great men and great women throughout history have never been described by their money, nor their success, but rather by their heart and what they do for others. Mm. Uh, and so my father, right after saying that, uh, my father died. Uh, my father died when I was 12 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, he died in my hands. Uh, and so it, it was it was a very difficult experience to see him pass away. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, hell of a last words that he had. Yeah. 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 How did yeah. those, they, how do those words stick with you? They still resonate to me to, with, to this very day, you know, and to go back to sort of the first question you asked about why this issue of child soldiers is important to me. Um, in detail, of course, I just explained through my story. It's a very personal experience. But the, this this last promise, really, that I made to my father was to always remember that leaving a positive legacy really is what's the most important aspect for us as human beings. And so this, this sort of quote that he gave me sort of stayed with me for a very long time. And I, I always uh, reflected on what it meant. What did he mean by that? Uh, and so I came came to an understanding that for me, education was important, right? He always taught me when I was a kid the importance of, of knowledge, knowledge production, um, that, you know, he loved reading. We always had books in my house. And so my dad loved reading, and he always told me about that your, your brain and your knowledge is what will take you far in life. And so I interpreted his words as the, the uh, uh, an importance of being a better human being, a better person, uh, but also learning and, and educating yourself so you have the power to change your own situation in many ways. And that's sort of the mission I've been on for a very long time, right? Whether it's speaking out on the issue of child soldiers or going to school and finishing my degree as I am uh, this month. Um, you know, so it's it's been sort of a reflection on that quote in general that has sort of propelled me in, in many ways to what, I, what I'm doing these days. Mm. Congratulations on uh, on completing the degree. Um, tell me a little bit about uh, since then, coming to Canada, yeah. when your family was able to move to Canada, how that happened, when you got the word, and what that move was like. Yeah. Um, and so the refugee process, uh, this is one of the more, the biggest misunderstandings about refugees. People tend to think that, you know, on one scale, people, you know, whenever I look at the news today and I see people berating uh, refugees or, you know, slandering, saying, oh, these refugees, well, we don't need them. People don't make a choice to become refugees. You know, it, it's it, no one wakes up in the morning and says, "Oh, I'm going to be a refugee today." Right. You know, it's it's not a choice. And then the refugee process to try and get resettled, for example, it's one of the most grueling experiences you go through. It's not an easy thing. It took my mom, for example, if you know, there are people that are refugees who did that, twenty years in refugee camps that have not seen a single person to ask them who they are or what their story is. Millions of refugees. Um, And so my family was very lucky, sad in the sense that we lost my father. And the death of my father was the catalyst for my family getting refugee status. And once we got refugee status, we knew that my family was in danger. And so we asked for resettlement. Mm. We didn't really want to go because my my dad's choice, really, he wanted to go back to Congo. I mean, that's where our family was. We had a home. Yeah, it's home. Uh, So... 
eventually when my father was assassinated in 2001, my mom started, became the mother, the father, and everything in between for my family. And she would wake up again as she was doing with my father, 3 a.m., wake up, go to the UN office, not because you're going to see someone, but because you're, you're going to stand there and hope that someone will recognize you and someone will call you into the office and they'll ask you about your story and they'll write it down and hopefully help you. That's literally what refugee life is like. You're living in hope that someone recognizes your humanity. Mm. And so three years later, eventually my, my mom, through her persistence, really, um, and, and I've, I always say this, I would not be speaking to you had it not been for the courage my mom showed every single day when she walked on the streets of Kampala some of the, in, at 3 a.m. And at that time, women were being raped on the street. And my mom would wake up and do it every day in hope because we had no other choice. And she did it. And eventually they called her in one day because they used to see her every day. Monday to Friday, <laughs> they would see her outside of that day. She was always there. And so they called her in. And they called her in and they asked her who she was. And she explained my father's story. They had my father on file already. She gave them my father's um, human rights card that he, he always, because they always gave you your, your IDs. And so she, she, we had to prove that we were Congolese. We had to prove my father's human rights activism. We had to prove, like, there's so much. But imagine if you're a refugee and you run without papers, because most people do, right? In the right. middle of war, you, you don't go around and be like, okay, get my papers. Where's your passport? You're running for your life. Right. We were just lucky enough that, you know, my dad had run away and he had his documents. Um, anyway, so we had documentations and all of this nature. All of these things expedited our process as refugees. And so the UN, because of the way it's mandated uh, with, within the UN system, basically every country accepts to take in a certain amount of refugees per year uh, to get resettled in different countries. We were just accepted into Canada, into the resettlement process. And so we ended up arriving in Canada on January 21st, 2004. Ooh, winter. Winter. Oh. It was minus 42 degrees. <laughs> One of the coldest experiences I've ever felt in my entire life. Yeah. I, was, I was traumatized to this very day. I still see snow coming from the sky and I'm just like, mm -mm -mm -mm, not going to pull me this time. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, it was... One of the funniest, one of the, the most strangest experiences I've ever seen in my entire life. Uh, I'll never forget it. I'll yeah. never forget it. Yeah. Uh, you already talked a little bit about uh, some of the differences that you noticed. I mean, you hear classmate complaining about the Motorola Razor. Yeah. Uh, but I'm wondering if you could share a bit more about what your impressions were coming to a totally different country, a new culture, new surroundings entirely. Um, what sorts of things jumped out at you as you made a new home in Canada? Yeah. Um, you know, one of the, uh, <laughs> it was just how nice people were. I think for the first sort of like our initial first few days, people were really nice. So you get, you get put in, you come to Canada as a refugee, you get put into this holding area. Um, it's almost like a motel type of situation. And, um, you get held, it's called reception house. And, you know, you're, you're kind of given sort of like a crash course on Canada. Like before you come to Canada, anyways, you go through this, like, uh, uh, you, you do a test uh, and they ask you a little bit about Canada. They give you sort of a book that you have to study um, and you get given a test. And so you have to answer a little bit about Canada, what you learned. And they give you sort of an orientation about what Canada's like and its history. 
And then, you know, you come to Canada and they give you sort of a very similar thing as well, but how Canadian society works, Canadian rules and males and females sort of get put into different areas and they're told about their rights and, and things of that nature. And so those are sort of like the initial sort of first few days of us living in Canada. And then, you know, other than the, like the cold and, and everything mm. that was going on, I think the first thing that I just noticed was just how, um, for me, I think it was, it was the first time I'd ever been in a place where my blackness became highlighted very vividly for the very mm. first time. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I, I was all of a sudden in a minority and, and I had never, I didn't know what that was like. Right. Uh, and so that was a little bit of a strange experience. Uh, and, and then just trying to navigate the, the, the politics of that, that of, of what that means. Um, learning about McDonald's, <laughs> having my first Big Mac and all these things. Uh, these are sort of like my initial sort of thoughts that I thought about Canada. But the other things that I really loved about Canada is for me was just how nice for me people were. You know, despite the fact that I was bullied in high school, most people were just really nice. They were very nice to me. They wanted to to hear who I was, where I was from, you know. And, and so that was that was really cool. And my teachers especially, I loved having free school. I loved having free school because in Congo and in many parts of the world, people don't have free school. Because school in many parts of the world, because of loans that countries have taken through through the World Bank and IMF, um, they they do this thing called structure adjustment policies, where basically they try to through to to uh, liberalize economies with new mm-hmm. liberal policies. Mm-hmm. And some of the policies that some of the implications of those loans is that you have to privatize education, and so people actually have to pay to go to school. So imagine being a very poor person having to pay money for your kid to go to school. And so that was that was this my experience in 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 my life in general with school was we sometimes had to choose which person goes to school what month because we didn't have enough money to support everyone going to school. And so arriving to Canada and seeing that I had school, I had teachers that were there, I had a, a, a I had a a locker for the very first time. Like these things <laughs> sound so trivial, but to me they were like these most amazing things that I could go to school for free and like my education, something that was so important to my father, so important to my family, was all of a sudden so accessible, was such an amazing feeling, an amazing experience. Even though later on, you know, I ended up as as I wrote the essay that I talked about, learned that there's sort of the gaps in the education system, you know, teaching about world history or the connection of of Canada or or North America to the rest of the world. It lacks, right? There's this sort of like this bubble that that we all live in sort of on this side of the world. Um, And so, yeah. I'm fast forwarding a little bit here, but uh, if you remember, I mean, telling Gary your story for the first time, then what was it like to stand on stage in front of a crowd Mm -hmm. and tell your story for the first time? That was nerve-wracking. Uh, the first time I ever told my story, other than Gary, was in front of 5,000 people at a, <laughs> at a stadium called the Rico Coliseum here in Toronto, Canada. Right. Um, and uh, it was a hockey arena. And I was told, yeah, so you're going to be speaking to 5,000 people for four minutes. Um, so choose your, your words wisely. <laughs> I was nervous. I was a nervous wreck. Uh, but I remember trying to figure out what to say. And I was, I, was, I was sitting down in the room and I called my mom and we were figuring out how do I, how do I construct this speech. So 
I'm not just telling a story for the sake of telling a story, but there's depth to it, right? So there's context to it. Um, it was very difficult, and I ended up just telling my story because, you know, I, I wasn't, at that time, at least when I, I was 19 years old, I wasn't uh, as developed sort of like academically to be able to to put sort of the bigger picture of my story into something that now I, of course, I, I can do and explain much better. But back then, it was more my story aspect of it. And it was a very therapeutic experience as much as it was a very nervous experience. Mm. Um, and so that was 2007 when I first told my story. Um, it was <laughs> whew, <laughs> 5,000 5, people. You know, people always say, you know, one of the biggest fears in the world, most people would rather die than actually public speak. Yeah. I experienced that feeling. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you yeah. know, your story has taken you so many places around this world. It has yeah. given you opportunities to be United Nations Fellow for people of African descent. Yeah. You've been able to uh, uh, really kind of network with other people and, and learn from other people and share your story to reach other people yeah. in all these different ways. What has been the best thing that has come from all of this for you? Uh, honestly, it's hard to say that there's a best thing that came out of it because, you know, you... I, I lost my childhood. I lost my my home and my family. So it sometimes it can be hard to sort of reflect on mm -hmm. what good came out of it in general. But I will say that what good for me personally came out of it was sort of a, an inner strength within myself. You know, even though I still deal with the the emotional aspect of of what I went through, the traumatizing experiences that I went through still affect me to this very day. Something that I, you know, you can never convey to someone. No one would ever understand what that's like. But there's sort of like an inner strength of like having gone through that and being able to adapt to whatever situation that comes your way, knowing that if I face something worse than this, like, this is nothing I can come out of it too. Uh, so this inner strength in a sense, uh, this ability to, to sort of adapt to whatever position you're put into. Mm. I w and the, the other thing was, yes, things like, you know, being given an opportunity to be the United Nations fellow uh, for people of African descent, um, getting opportunities to speak with people like the Dalai Lama, getting platforms, even like your platform, right? Like being on, on the podcast, being able to say that the issue of child soldiers is very serious. And the reason why this, this issue, it's important to me. And, and uh, going back to sort of, again, the first question you had asked me is, you know, it's in 2000, 2000, the world sat down in, in Winnipeg asking the question, how do we end the use of child soldiers? Um, next week, I'll be going to France in Normandy and I'll be speaking at a panel. And they're asking that question 18 years later, how do we stop the issue of child soldiers? Mm. For me personally, it's a very frustrating experience. It it's, makes me angry and it has nothing to do with organizers or anyone, but it, it makes me angry because as a world, it tells me that we haven't learned anything. Right. That the issue of child soldiers, the issue of child soldiers is not a standalone issue, right? It's it's not a oh some Africans just or, or people child soldiers exist in, in in Yemen, they exist in 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 Colombia, everywhere they are. People don't just wake up and say oh, we're going to use children. The reason why child soldiers exist in our world today is the proliferation of small armed weapons. And the G8 countries, G7 countries, the countries that, that, that talk about the importance of children, the children's rights, countries that sit in the Security Council, are the same countries that sell weapons across the world, making deals to countries like Saudi Arabia. And those weapons inadvertently end up in the hands of children. Mm. 
So there's a hypocrisy in the international community to talk about peace or we want peace, but yet our actions dictate otherwise. Right. And so it still comes to the issue of child soldiers. The reason why I go through almost feels like a very cathartic experience of retelling a story that's very difficult and very hard is because I want to end the issue of child soldiers, but I don't want to do it by just putting simple solutions, which our world tends to want to do. The solution really is, are we prepared to end the issue of poverty? Are we prepared to stop the economic inequalities that exist in the world today? Are we going to stop being hypocritical by saying one thing here, but yet letting other countries, if, if they fit our, our own international agenda, our own like foreign agendas, supporting people that, that are, are, are human rights abusers mm-hmm. and not taking them to justice? Right, so this 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 is sort of the personal aspect for me on the issue of child soldiers, and one of the the things, the positive things that has come out of this experience, is to sort of learn my own power, the power in my own story, and the ability to able to shape a narrative and not just go up and speak, and and so to take sort of the the stand that I'm taking now, it's like I want to end this issue because there are two hundred and fifty thousand child soldiers that we at least know, mm. of course that fight in the many conflicts that go on around the world. But if we look at the conflicts since that number was given, you know, again, 2000 in Winnipeg, those numbers are probably even more now when you look at the issues that are going on in the Middle East. Right. Right. And so all of these issues are, are, are very important to me. Uh, uh, the issue of peace, how do you achieve it? You know, how do you stop child soldiers? You know, really, it's about a long-term, ve- long-term vision rather than a small-time fix. And so it's just asking if the world is prepared to go, if we're prepared to go to war, are we prepared to also be prepared to, to invest in the peace that has to come afterwards? This isn't always an easy, this doesn't always come with an easy answer, but you know, it's, it's hard sometimes for people to grasp when issues are so, so large and so seemingly uh, overwhelming, how any one individual can make a difference. Of course. Do you see ways in which, any one of us individually can make a difference. Yes. Uh, the, biggest, the, the biggest thing that we have in, in, in democratic societies is our ability to vote and our ability to hold politicians and, and our leaders accountable. Over, I mean, I've lived here in North America. I've lived in Canada for the past 14 years. And so I've gone to school here. I've grown up here in many ways. And so I've noticed sort of the, and because my father was a politician, I'm very, I'm, I love politics. I, I'm, I'm invested in politics. I love sort of talking about those things because I think everything is politics. The food we eat has some politics behind it, everything. So, but there's this apathy that I think, especially people have, young people sometimes have this apathy towards politics. And for me, I think if we're going to, to make an impact on our planet, on, on the issues that we care about, it's going to have to come from people who are visionaries. It's going to have to come from people who are willing to actually listen and not just speak. For me, the biggest, the biggest um, and the best trait of a, of a leader for me, of leadership, is the humility to listen and to learn. Mm. And we don't have enough leadership in our political situations right now, whether it's here in Canada, whether it's, it's the United States, whether it's Europe. We don't have leaders who are willing to, to be humble to listen, of course, because there's social issues going on around. So, but those happen because the people we vote in, we vote them based on our own emotions rather, the, rather on what are they actually going to do? You know, what do they actually promise? 
And who are, who, who are they promising those things to? So that individually, one way that we can do that in a democratic society is to actually vote for people who that we know are actually good, good leaders, good thinkers, that they're not just talking out of their mouth and that's it. So that's one, one way. Mm-hmm. Um, the second way is, is just learn. Learn the ability to go and actually like be critical, be a critical thinker. Too many of us spend too much time on Twitter. We're we've become a society of like a, a thirty second video informs our decisions and everything that happens. Definitely, but society is very complex. You know, people are very complex. Issues themselves are very complex. As I said, with the issue of child soldiers, you know, when people mention child soldiers, automatically you think of blood diamonds. Um, you know, of beasts of no nation with Idris Elba, kids with guns. But the issue of child soldiers is much deeper than that, right? It's very connected to the issues that are going on politically, internationally, and economically. And so you have to understand those things because that will inform you as a person. And the more informed you are, the more you better you are to, to actually make better decisions that are happening around the world. So holding our nations accountable for things like weapons that are being sold around the world. No country should be making billions of dollars off of the death of people around the world. How mm. fair is that? You know, mm-hmm. how fair is that really? And so, being able to just learn, so so read um, critically, be a critical thinker, right? Be a critical uh, voter, be a critical person in general. So just critical skills, and that takes going to school, that takes reading, and just being a better person in general, right? Listening to podcasts, listening to alternative news rather than just the the mainstream views that we sort of get given. The third way is honestly find organizations that are around the world. Uh, so if you, if you want to make sort of like a quick donations, there are many organizations that help rehabilitate children, former child soldiers. But I don't think rehabilitation comes just from, you know, giving someone, uh, take their weapon away and give them, a, a, you know, an alternative work opportunity. Right. And then you give them, right? Like it has to be a very holistic experience that, and a very individual um, experience. So find organizations that are doing that. They're, they exist on the other side of the world. So research and find those organizations. So if, if the issue of child soldiers is something that you're passionate about or that you want to help, you know, find those organizations that, that are around the world that do that work. You know, these are, these are just simple things that I guess I can give. But the other thing I think that, you know, sometimes we feel so helpless, as you, you've just said, so many of us feel so helpless with what we see going on around the world. And it feels as if like the ground beneath us is sort of like shifting and we don't know where to go. But I go back to the quote, my father left me. Great men and great women throughout history have never been described by their money nor their success, but rather by their heart and what they do for others. Hmm. It's our ability to empathize with others. It's our ability to look at somebody else, not see them, see them as a threat, not see them as somebody that's wanting to kill you, but see them, see their humanity and their ability to want to live, to survive, to help their kids and their children survive. And I feel like as a society, as a world in general, we're going away from the very core essence that made, has made us as a society who we are. When we think about the... Um, for example, the reason why we, in Canada we have a, 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 a welfare state, you know, even though it's been chipped away by neoliberal policies, mm-hmm. but the reason why the welfare state existed, came out even in the United States, was because people were suffering. And as a society, we said never again, never again. And so I feel as if we're shifting away from that 
And rather than look at each other's humanity, we're becoming very individualistic as a society. Right. And we're not seeing the repercussions of that because, yeah, you know, there's nothing wrong with being, with wanting to be a better individual. But if it's at the, at the cost of somebody else, then how is it, how are you becoming a better human being? You know? Mm. And so for me, the ability to empathize with others is such an important trait because all of it feeds into the solutions that we come up with as a society reflect who we are. When we ban refugees, it reflects in the, our ability to empathize. Do you think if you don't see the humanity in somebody else, you're going to see the, the, the humanity in your fellow American or your fellow Canadian? Sure. Right. 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 right? So these are sort of the things that I think are, are, are important for us to reflect on as people. And I think it's the ability for me. One of the things that I, I always recommend to parents that always ask me, what can I do with my children? I always say, you know, talk to your children about what they see around them, right? If they see poverty, like give them the context to it, explain it to them, what poverty is happening. Then go to a soup kitchen, right? Go to a soup kitchen, like make volunteering a part of, of your world, of your family experience. Um, one of my, of my good friends, my former boss, um, who started Free the Children, used to say that his parents, the reason why he became such an empathetic human being was his parents would wake up, his parents were teachers, and they'd wake up in the morning very early before they all go to school. They'd have the newspaper as they're having breakfast, and they just read the, the front page, the stories on the front page. Mm -hmm. And then they talk about it as a family, right? Just that routine of simply talking about what's going on around the world made them so aware and that they, they became very conscious of what was happening, right? So teach our children to be conscious about what's happening around the world. Teach ourselves of that nature as well. And then lastly, it's traveling and traveling not to volunteer, but traveling actually to just learn about the world mm. because the world isn't just our own little spaces and our own little bubbles that we live in. The world is very open. And when we see what happens on the news and we only see the world through the, the, the screens that we have, we lose out on actually the ability to see the humanity in others. So if you have the means to do so, like go and travel, go see the world, go see people and connect with human beings. I think you, you learn so much about yourself and, but also about the world just through that experience. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, Michelle, I think back to the words that uh, your grade 10 teacher said, you know, everybody in that one seat had quite a story to tell. And uh, by all means, you're no exception to that. I want to thank you for sharing your story and uh, yeah. for continuing to share your story. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on and giving me the platform to do so. That's it for the show. Thanks for listening, and I hope you liked it. And maybe like isn't the right word in this circumstance, but I hope it meant something. I hope it left you with something to think about, something to hold on to. That's all I can really hope for with these episodes. If you enjoyed the show, you can do me a favor. Hit subscribe, leave a rating and a review. But above all, tell someone else you think might enjoy the show. Steal their phones and hit subscribe for them. That's how this thing is going to grow. If you want to keep in touch, a few ways you can. You can send me an email at storyuntoldpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow along on Facebook at facebook.com slash storyuntoldpodcast. You can also follow me on Twitter at martin underscore bauman. Theme music for the show is by Dr. Turtle off the album You Um, I'll Ah. Once again, I'm Martin Bauman, and this was A Story Untold. See you next time.